This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo and this is Jesse and this is from now on called the Great War Supporter Podcast because it's not only published on Patreon now but also we have a few supporters on YouTube now. There's a new support feature there. People are also eligible to listen to that so we uploaded, upload the file as a video. You can listen to it there. That's why it's the Great War Supporter Podcast now. Isn't that exciting? I'm... I'm quaking with excitement at the moment. And very thankful for all of our supporters, whether on Patreon or YouTube, of course. That is certainly true. And speaking of excitement, let's talk about history. I'm there. What did we learn this month? Wow, I learned that uh, Hungarian place names are very hard to read and pronounce and remember. But um, aside from that, a lot of our viewers have very kindly uh, made nice comments about my abilities in uh, different languages, but I can tell you folks that uh, I met my Waterloo with Hungarian, and I won't be uh, going for an ambitious pronunciation in the upcoming episode. But, Spaß beiseite, as they say, all fun aside, um, reading about the Hungarian Soviet Republic was a really fascinating thing. I knew that it had existed before, but I'd never really dived into the details, so to speak. And um, it was just pretty cool to see the, the development and how the Allied powers really struggled with applying their realpolitik ambitions and the Wilsonian 14 points about self-determination, which were basically impossible to apply anyway, given the ethnic mix of the of the area and there's just a constant struggle from all parties to interpret and push the way that they want it to be seen. And uh, that I thought was, um, was one of the interesting elements to the story. My takeaway from this, and I think this can be applied to a lot of the topics we're going to talk about in regards to Eastern Europe but also other parts of the world, is if you apply Wilson's idea of ethnic self-determination in a historically grown, ethnically diverse region, you're gonna have a bad time. That is true. And we see that happening uh, in the next phase in 1945, where there's basically mass ethnic cleansing on an unprecedented uh, scale of tens of millions. So, um, Yeah, but I, I also I didn't know much about this topic. Um, I found it very interesting um, because, I mean, I've, I've tra traveled through Hungary and through Southeastern Europe and I've, I know that even in current Hungary uh, or in, let's say, in Hungary 10 years ago even, the Treaty of Tri Trianon, which we will come to uh, next year, and the whole, this whole situation and what 
became of it and this whole idea about okay we Hungary lost so and so much territory and how that came to be is still a point of content for them to put it mildly and um, I mean I know that even for example the Slovak Slovakian Hungarian relations are also even today not good not good and uh, Romanians too yeah so it was really interesting to learn about the origins of that, of course, the real origins go much further, probably into the 19th century. But this kind of uh, how these all these tensions erupted into in this in this vacuum after World War One was very fascinating. And as always, something that I also um, found fascinating about the Russian Civil War is how the Allies meddled in it. That, for example, the French were there uh, advancing with the Serbs in the south, yeah, uh, in the south, and how you know. At least the Jan, Jan Smuts and uh, some other uh, Nicholson, Harold Nicholson, Harold yeah. Nicholson, um, you know, at least paid a cordial visit to uh, to Bilakun and everything. So I, I always find this fascinating how they meddled in this, and also in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, okay, while the peace conference was going on. So this is certainly the probably the most direct application of diplomacy if things that are negotiated at, at a table somewhere in Western Europe get applied directly into results, so to speak, uh, at the same time. Or sometimes the local representatives of the Allies are making decision, decisions that don't necessarily correspond to what the peacemakers are planning or thinking, or they haven't had a chance to think about it, but things are happening already. I mean, Clemenceau was not happy that uh, Franchet d'Esperi uh, didn't go harder on the Hungarians in November 1918, and that's partly what led to what happened then in March, with the Allies basically deciding we're going to break the terms of uh, the ceasefire to give some more advantages or benefits to the Romanians because they're they're our ally, they're on our side, right? But um, just quickly to the point of uh, current day Hungary, I remember. The first time I ever went to Hungary, it's a long time ago now, I get out of the bus in the bus station and staring at me is a, a vendor selling t-shirts and sweatshirts with the word Trianon on it and the old borders of the kingdom of Hungary were being portrayed as the true uh, borders of Hungary. So it's definitely still uh, a very hot topic there. Yeah. Any other juicy bits and anecdotes that you uh, came across in your research that we didn't necessarily have time to include in the episode? Yeah, there were a couple. Uh, one of the wildest ones was when the, when the Romanians uh, began to advance to implement the March 20th ultimatum uh, of the Allies for the, for the new demarcation line, of course, there was some fighting. It was nothing on the scale of the Great War or even the uh, Russian Civil War. Casualties are kind of in the hundreds. Um, but there was a, a, one of the few uh, successful counterattacks by the Hungarians was led by the Commissar for Military Affairs, uh, Tibor Samueli. And uh, he himself rode in on an armored train to this village, the name of which, of course, I cannot pronounce and they recaptured it from the Romanians. And I, kind of, I couldn't get the image out of my head that this is sort of like the Great War equivalent of at the end of the Stanley Kubrick film, Dr. Strangelove, where he's sitting on the atomic bomb, sort of waving his cowboy hat around. I kind of envisioned 
Tibor Samuelis sitting on the armored train uh, with a red banner kind of riding into this uh, village. So kind of a little dramatic one-off. But I think the, the other two things about Hungary were uh, I ran into an audio recording of uh, Lenin giving a speech where he kind of talks about his regular radio communication with Bela Kuhn and how much he hopes that the Soviet Republic will survive and be part of the world revolution. And I hadn't heard uh, many voices from this period. There are some recordings of Kaiser Franz Josef or Kaiser Wilhelm and the other leaders and so on. But uh, I hadn't heard any in years. And it's, it's a different connection, I think, when you're hearing the voice as opposed to reading the quotes and reading the documents. And that was a little bit of a, a neat uh, moment that I had. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the other topic that we originally intended to put into the main episode, then we realized the scope of the whole Hungarian situation and then decided it will get its extra spot in Beyond the Great War, um, is an event from 100 years ago in Germany again, but not in Berlin, but in Bavaria. Which, and to bring some current, let's say, stereotypes into the play, is probably the last place people imagine to once be, have been a, social, a Soviet Republic. But here we are, April, March 1919, and there is the Münchner Räterepublik or the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Yes, for a limited time only, let's say, uh, as they say in the commercials. It didn't last that long, but it was quite a dramatic episode. And the lead up to it was interesting as well, because uh, Kurt Eisner was the prime minister of Bavaria before the Soviet Republic was established, but after the end of the war. So he was a sort of the social democratic, independent social democratic prime minister, and he was assassinated, right? And he was assassinated by uh, an aristocrat who had, whose philosophy, let's say, was nationalistic and anti-Semitic. Uh, so that's why he decided to assassinate Eisner, who was socialist and Jewish. Um, and this aristocrat, his, his name was... Um, I forget his first name, but his, his family name was Arco Valley. Uh, he himself was part Jewish. And so that's kind of, uh, the, I thought that was a bit of a, an interesting take. And one of the sources I read kind of threw out the uh, psychological suggestion that he might have been so extreme in his views and, and decided to go through with this assassination as a way of partially at least proving to himself and other nationalists with whom he was in contact that despite his Jewish roots, you know, he was worthy of the nationalist anti-Semitic cause. Um, he ended up being in, in the jail cell that Hitler was then put into in 1923 when he spent time in jail. So Arco Valley moved out of that cell so that Hitler could uh, move in, which is not important in the grand scheme of history, but nonetheless, one of those little nuggets that you just uh, don't expect to come across. Yeah, absolutely. And to further flesh this out a bit for people who are interested in this period of Bavarian history, as I just said, 
in German, this is called the Münchner Rätrepublik, so the Munich Soviet Republic. But there were, of course, events in the Bavarian countryside as well, and it affected the Bavarian countryside as well. Um, so earlier today, we um, invited Frank Jakob to the podcast. He is a historian, a German historian, who currently is a professor at Nord University in Oslo, and he researched the impact of the revolution on the countryside. He looked at smaller cities and uh, the rural areas. And you can listen to that interview through Editing Magic right now. All right, so today we have with us uh, German historian Frank Jakob, who has written a book about the Bavarian Soviet Republic, focusing on one particular region of Bavaria. And since we're going to do a part of one of our upcoming episodes on the Bavarian Soviet Republic as well, we thought it would be a good opportunity to talk to him. So thanks a lot for joining us, Frank, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's get the ball rolling with uh, a bit of a general approach. So can you tell us a bit about the book and what uh, approach you've taken, what kind of questions interested you about the Bavarian Soviet Republic? Yeah, it might be a little bit surprising that a historian in Norway, uh, where I'm located, I work at uh, Nord University, and uh, specifically as a global historian, is working on such a micro approach on Lower Franconia, uh, region within Bavaria, but uh, that's the region where I studied and where I live when I'm not in Norway, so I got interested in the material and I edited the archival material on Kurt Eisner, the first prime minister in Bavaria, who was also a socialist, so I um, was familiar with the events in Munich, especially since I also studied uh, the Thule Society, which was involved in the anti-left agitation in the city. But uh, I was wondering, since a lot of works focus on Berlin and Munich, if the revolution happened similarly and if the radicalization was similar in a region like Lower Franconia. So I took a look at the four major cities or towns in that region, which is Würzburg, where uh, the local government had its office. I looked at Schweinfurt, which was in a more industrial town, Aschaffenburg, which was almost, uh, or let's say, which is the last stand of Bavaria before Hessen begins, and um, Kitzingen, which is uh, the smallest town in the group, uh, rather known as a wine region today and I checked the local archives to see how the revolution and uh, the council system, I would rather refer to the council system instead of the Soviet system because there are some differences, and um, the perception of the Soviet Republic in Munich um, was and if it was comparable. And if there were differences where those differences were, because we have council republics or Soviet republics in Würzburg, and we have one that existed two to five days in Aschaffenburg. It was announced, we have a Soviet republic, and then it collapsed because the military didn't back it up. So there are different settings, of course, different demographics. While Würzburg is rather conservative, 
We have a strong workers community, workers milieu in Schweinfurt. Um, we have a mix in Kitzing and a mix in Aschaffenburg as well, which used to be um, a very Catholic uh, spot in Bavaria as well. And still is, you have a lot of churches because uh, the bishop was sitting in uh, Aschaffenburg as well. So therefore, um, we have different, um, yeah, urban environments in the same region and the question was how was the revolution going on in those regions what impacted the radicalization or what prevented such a radicalization and overall one can say that the people in that region um, always of course looked to munich but at the same time uh, considered themselves to be different from munich and they were all, no matter if they were conservative or if they were um, rather standing in the tradition of the moderate left, interested in quiet and order. So at the beginning, the council system cooperated with the existing uh, civil servants. Everything continued. The councils were something like in, yeah, uh, a political organ that would advise or tr sometimes even try to occupy some parts of the local administration. But in all of those cases, there was rather not an extreme conflict between the councils on the one hand and the continuing government that switched from a monarchy to a yeah, eventually elected democracy. And uh, it is interesting to see that it just functioned. So the revolution as such was very quiet, one has to say, in this region. Well then, uh, fits to the German stereotype, I suppose, of, uh, of looking for order. Um, yeah, probably. Now, what, what I found interesting about, uh, about the approach that you took uh, and some of the different characteristics of the towns that you mentioned is that there was a certain amount of diversity because when I was researching for our episode on the Bavarian Soviet Republic, uh, obviously the literature largely focuses on the, the city of Munich and kind of brushes aside uh, that diversity outside of the city. Basically, the sources I consulted, they all kind of agree. Yeah, in the countryside and in the smaller towns, uh, people were Catholic, people were conservative, and they were not interested in identifying with or supporting, you know, the intellectual Jewish urban poets who played such a prominent role in in Munich itself. Is that uh, an oversimplification? Because I know that in Russia, for example, there was quite a lot of revolutionary activity in the countryside. And yet in Bavaria, this is not something that's uh, talked about so much. Yeah, one has to emphasize here that the council system or the Räte system was not very systemic. There were a lot of councils that were totally different depending on the region they existed in. Sometimes they were small, sometimes they were larger. If there had been a political organization before, they were probably more radical. If there was an USP in the region, a USP, one of the independent uh, social democratic party uh, or the socialists, 
if they had a strong organization in the region, the councils were, of course, politically more radical. On the other hand, we had councils uh, also dependent on the demography that were only uh, peasants or only workers or workers and soldiers mixed, or we had workers and soldiers councils depending where they existed. So the councils in Würzburg, for example, were rather um, unionized and close to the MSPD, while the councils in Schweinfurt, which is only like 40 kilometers away, they were more radical in the political sense because they had um, a stronger political conscience with regard to the left before already. And uh, sometimes those councils were just um, ad hoc creations. In Kitzingen, they tried to, to recruit a former lawyer into the council position and the lawyer uh, didn't want to become uh, part of the council because he considered that uh, as yeah, a political organ of the left. So we see that also the idea of what the council as such is, is uh, very diverse. And it was also discussed because Eisner, as prime minister, emphasized the role of the councils as a form of direct democracy, while Erhard Auer, the minister of the interior, made it clear that the councils had no political authority. So even in the government, it wasn't clear which role the councils were supposed to play. Um, in the end, Eisner probably favored a mix of both parliament and councils. And uh, Auer was not interested in the council system. He wanted to have a parliamentarian system as soon as possible. And we see those conflicts in the countryside as well, because very often there is also a little bit of a co smaller conflict about who has the last saying, the council or the local government. And from the council's perspective, the local government was a representative of the old regime, while from the government's perspective, the councils were an element of distraction, an element of further revolution, of further radicalization. But all in all, in Lower Franconia at least, that's what I can say, the cooperation usually functioned pretty well because both parties were interested to keep an existing order to prevent further radicalization. A lot of the councils were moderately left but not as left as a Bolshevik would be in Russia, or as um, the radicals would be that then announce uh, the Soviet Republic in Bavaria or the Council's Republic in Bavaria. Okay. Um, now, I don't know uh, to what extent you have also researched the, let's say, the the combat aspect or the violence aspect of the of the revolution there but i remember reading in mark jones's book about founding weimar where his lens is about the the use of violence and on the part of the state especially and he mentioned that um that this massacre there was a massacre just for our viewers uh, on may 6 i mean there were several massacres but there was one in particular on may 6 so after the fall of the Soviet Republic, there's a case of a mistaken identity 
where there's a group of uh, Catholic uh, students meeting in a church. Somebody tips off the Freikorps that, they, that it's actually a Spartacist uh, meeting. And the Freikorps come, they grab them, they don't believe uh, their claims of innocence. And um, one of the Freikorpsmen shoots himself by accident while he's pistol whipping one of the students. And then the Freikorpsmen execute the students for which they are actually prosecuted and go to trial. Um, and Jones takes this example and he says, this shows that the state was able to punish and control excessive violence when it wanted to, which it did not do during the Spartacus rebellion in Berlin in January, which it did not do for the uh, executions that took place during the attack on the Munich Soviet Republic. And I was wondering if you, uh, if you agree with Jones on that or how you see that aspect of state violence. Uh, first of all, it is, I have to uh, emphasize that this book is really great because it stimulates a lot of discussion. It is well written and it shows that a lot of research on German left history, unfortunately, has to be done by foreigners. Uh, because there obviously is no genuine interest in German, uh, Germany itself and the historical field in Germany in particular, although there are new studies. I do not want to um, deny that, but it is interesting that a major work is produced again by a foreign scholar, considering that Alan Mitchell was one of those who started the research on the Bavarian Council's Republic or Soviet Republic. It is interesting to see that. Um, of course, violence plays an important role. Um, Jones takes specifically a look at the capitals again, so Berlin for the north and Munich for the south. There is also violence in Lower Franconia. It is much more limited because uh, the struggle as such is asymmetrical. We have a lot of soldiers in Würzburg and a lower number of extreme revolutionaries or extreme radicals. Um, they, we have a short episode of fighting on a day and uh, we have a much lower number of victims. Uh, we also have a struggle in Schweinfurt when the military arrives and circles the city and uh, puts yeah, some kind of pressure on the situation and then there is an eruption of violence, although there is no real Soviet Republic there. So the state, of course, is in a position where it needs violence to contain the radicalization of the revolution. So if we consider revolutions as processes, once the change is achieved, which would be the case with uh, the elections in January, there is always the possibility for a second revolutionary step that radicalizes. And that was exactly what happened in Russia. And people were aware of the possibility that even a minority would be able to take over the state if not contained immediately. And uh, that might have been a factor that was important for the use and the acceptance of anti-left violence by the state. And uh, one has to see Ebert here as a tragical figure 
because Ebert wanted to save the moderate revolution or was in a way forced to save the moderate revolution, which he probably never wanted that way. But um, he has to use the elites that exist, especially with regard to the military, to suppress those who want to go further. And this is specifically related to the perception of the Russian Revolution. I, one would, counterfactual history would be interesting here to ask what would have happened without the Russian Revolution, where without that extreme fear for another revolutionary step, but this specific knowledge about what could happen, and we see that fear of Bolshevism everywhere. In Lower Franconia, the local newspapers, they always argue Bolshevism is civil war, we have to prevent uh, further radicalization, and those who are responsible for that are uh, Bolshevist agents from abroad, uh, mostly Jewish, and they are trying to corrupt the revolution. Uh, Eisner was considered such a person uh, from Berlin who rules Munich. That was for some people enough to put him in that category. And uh, the same is true for Tony Weibel, who will lead the Würzburg uh, Council's Republic. He's from um, the Stuttgart area, so also somebody who's uh, not from the region, leading so far that some newspapers claim that he's a, a Russian agent because he speaks a dialect that is so different from the region's dialect. So they uh, mistake the Schwäbisch for Russian uh, for Russian and say that's a Russian agent. So it is clear that the state with regard to the prosecution of the violence that takes place is rather interested in containing the left when we see the um, the trials and the eventual time people have to spend in jail and we compare that I think there might be um, a mis uh, a misratio between the years left revolutionaries and right-wing counter-revolutionaries have to spend in jail. Um, but that's just a guess. I haven't studied that empirically, but I'm pretty sure. Anecdotally, that would make sense with most or pretty much everything that I've read uh, on revolutionary Germany up to this point for the show. Um, yeah, my last question, I think, is about the echo or the, the lasting implications of the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Yeah, so Michaela Kahl uh, published this book about the Bavarian Soviet Republic, and the last chapter kind of points to the future, where she basically uh, titles the chapter something along the lines of, uh, you know, from Soviet Republic to cradle of reaction, Hort der Reaktion in German basically saying because of the shock and trauma of the Soviet Republic that that contributed to Bavaria becoming a, a heartland of Nazism. Do you think that's a realistic assessment or that's a little bit going too far and that these structures w were already in place before? I would say it's, uh, that needs a twofold answer. First of all, as historians, we tend to evaluate the events of the past from a retrospective. That means we know what happened afterwards, 
um, that's also part with um, the evaluation of the revolution. The revolution as such was successful because it changed the political system, it established a democracy, it gave women the right to vote, it introduced the eight-hour day, it was successful. In the end, in 1933, 15 years later, it failed because it was uh, tried to, or one tried to protect the achievements of the revolution by uh, union with some old elites. So der Schulterschluss mit den alten Eliten, with the military, for example, and uh, Noske characterizing himself as somebody who has to do a job that nobody wants to do, um, the Bluetooth, the revolution, and therefore um, one has to be careful. Of course, um, the revolution ended in a long-term perspective with the rise of national socialism, but that also incorporates a lot of events on the way, like uh, the financial crisis in 1929 that eventually stimulates uh, the last few years of the rise. The um, fact that Hindenburg is uh, Reichspräsident plays a role uh, and that is not a direct consequence of the revolution as such. On the other hand, there is, of course, a relation between the revolution and uh, the rise of National Socialism. The permanent fear for revolution, and specifically for revolutions from the left, is used by National Socialists when they create Bolshevism as one of their natural enemies. So the idea that there is a Jewish Bolshevist conspiracy is used by the National Socialists as a propaganda tool. It even continues after the rise of National Socialism or this so-called Caesar of power. When we see, for example, the Schwarze Chor, the newspaper of the SS, there is also, or there are references to Judeo-Bolshevism. And sometimes these are used as semiotics that are present for people living between 1918 and the 1940s, always in relation to the Council's Republic or Soviet Republic in Munich and to the Spartacus people in Berlin. So the names of those, uh, let's say, second step or second period revolutionaries or second phase revolutionaries, however we want to call them, or radicals, they are usually um, connected to the image of foreign agent for Bolshevism who are also Jewish. And this is one of the arguments. Hitler has technically in the beginning two main enemies, the system of Versailles and Jewish Bolshevism. And therefore, with regard to the propaganda perspective, there is definitely an impact. Nevertheless, the rise of National Socialism cannot only be explained by that, because um, of course it is a subconscious element, the German fear for a left revolution and therefore they support National Socialism, but that alone uh, will not um, explain the rise of National Socialism. There are factors on a transnational level that have to be incorporated, but it is an important one. And the uh, semiotics continue. We have um, 
for example, a publication by Dietrich Eckhart, who was one of Hitler's early influences, Der Bolshevismus uh, from Moses to Lenin. So Bolshevism is created as one of those world conspiracies and the work acts like a dialogue between Eckhart and Hitler. So I say, he says, I say, he says. And um, Ernst Nolte, in the time when he was still sane, uh, researched that text and argued that it could be used um, as a source, especially a valuable source. And even if the talk as such is not authentic, it emphasizes or shows that um, this idea of the Bolshevist or Jewish Bolshevist conspiracy was, in a way, forwarded to Hitler from 1918, where Hitler was politically not so sure what he himself was, besides being anti-Semitic. And um, therefore, yes and no. There are um, impacts of the revolution, especially with regard to the ideology of National Socialism, but with regard to the Realpolitik or the rise of National Socialism, I would argue that the impact should not be overemphasized. Thanks a lot for coming uh, and joining us today, Frank. Can you, before we go, can you tell our listeners uh, where they can get a hold of your book, where they can follow you and kind of keep up with the latest research on the topic? Mm -hmm. uh, they can find the book um, in the local bookstores, if preferred. Um, the title is uh, Revolution und Räterepublik in Unterfranken, Revolution and Council's Republic or Soviet Republic in Lower Franconia. There is a long subtitle which I skip here. Um, you can follow me on Twitter if you want, uh, where I regularly post on new research and new publications. Um, I, as a global historian, that's the official nomination of my job, I work in different fields. I also work in uh, Japanese history, uh, to name just one example, but um, in the recent years I worked a lot on Kurt Eisner uh, and Bavarian history in particular, and uh, some of other works related to that period are also available uh, through open access at some uh, journal sites, for which I'm very thankful at that point. All right, uh, so thanks again to Frank Jakob for his time. Uh, we. As he said, he's also uh, studying Japanese history, uh, actually as a global historian, and he already teased to us after the interview that he's working on uh, research on the protest movements in Korea, Japan and China after the war. So we hope we can collaborate with him a bit more to bring you some more insights about Asia in the post-World war, post war One world. But before we do that and go to the other end of the world, we actually want to go back to here, where we are right now, which is Berlin. Um, you read about, a bit about that and we actually got some questions from, from different Patreons about... Um, there was a bit of confusion because, it, as it turned out, there was a second Spartacus uprising, you could say. And uh, something called the Battle of Lichtenberg. So. <laughs> yes. Which is, sounds very funny to me because Lichtenberg is just a borough of Berlin and it sounds very dramatic and I've never heard about it. Uh, so what, what, what did we learn about that? 
I mean, when I lived in Berlin, Lichtenberg was known for cheap apartments and underground parties, not uh, open street fighting with uh, heavy machinery of war. But yeah, this is something I knew that there had been some other clashes, but I really learned when I was researching about, about spring 1919 just to what extent things exploded in Berlin. Um, the, there was a March uprising for about 10 days, mostly centered in a couple of the neighborhoods around where our studio is located in the, well, what became known as East Berlin later on. And there were over a thousand people killed. That is a major amount of combat. And the army and Freikorps brought in heavy artillery. They were using uh, 15 centimeter field guns to, or 15 centimeter artillery pieces to bombard the leftist positions until there were some complaints uh, about the noise. So they reduced it and brought in the lighter 7.5 centimeter pieces. So there's still, uh, let's say, German civility somehow uh, involved. But um, this was wild. I mean, the Battle of Lichtenberg is probably not an exaggeration if you have over a thousand people being killed. And the government even used uh, fighter planes to swoop in and strafe with machine gun fire, strafe the, uh, the positions of the Spartacists. And this was the first time that any civilians in Berlin were killed as a result of military action from the air. Of course, that would change in the, in the Second World War on a, on a whole different scale, but nonetheless, it's an interesting step uh, on, that, on that road to new modern warfare. And I think it's a, it's a good uh, reminder about what uh, Frank told us in the interview to, uh, and what Mark Jones wrote in his book. To understand the situation in Germany is to understand the A, constant fear, or you could also say, I mean, of course, the use of that fear in propaganda about a Bolshevist-style revolution in Germany. And... Also, and, and also, even after we have the first real uh, elected government in Weimar now, which is, and you know, if you ever wondered why that was in Weimar and not in Berlin, which was the historic capital of Russia, uh, that was because Berlin was not safe enough. And I think <laughs> they pro after the Battle of Lichtenberg, they probably knocked on wood and, uh, and realized it was a good idea to move it to Weimar, which was far quieter than, than Berlin ever was uh, in terms of that. And uh, I think it just illustrates this constant tension even after the elections now uh, that Ebert uh, and Noske still had their hands full and were scared about what's going to, you know, that they need, still needed to quiet down the situation and there was still protest and unrest. Yeah, and um, another little nugget related to that March uprising, which relates back to our first Great War 1919 episode in January, but the Spartacist uprising, which in the end was actually much smaller than the March uprising, even though it's the Spartacist uprising that's the most famous one, is that uh, Rosa Luxemburg's lover was captured and then uh, executed by police in, in the March uprising. Oh, wow. So that's a little uh, kind of little anecdote where that tragic story comes full circle. Yeah, so situation in Germany is still 
uh, tense. Uh, we will probably uh, take a closer look at some of these events later this year. Uh, I mean, everybody here who is listening who knows a bit about early 20th century history knows it's not going to get much quieter. It in, doesn't get any better. <laughs> in, the, in the upcoming uh, months and years. And uh, as, as I said, we will also try to, of course, look at other parts of the world uh, and other parts of Eastern Europe. We will re revisit the Russian Civil War in the future. And on that note, I think that was it for our third ever episode of the Great War Supporter Podcast. Um, I hope you like what you heard. Uh, we will probably uh, focus a bit more on Italy soon because I have an interview lined up with an American historian who researches Italian history. And since Mussolini just proclaimed his uh, fasci movement uh, 100 years ago, that is rather fitting. So that you can be excited for. And if you have any questions or remarks for the podcast, just keep them coming. And thank you for your support. And enjoy watching our videos. We will see you next time. And I will leave you with a quote from the Czechoslovak leader Thomas Masaryk. He said that Europe was a laboratory built over the graveyard of the Great War. And I think the topics we discussed today um, pretty much support that view. <laughs>